Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Today is the 8th of April and we're excited to bring you today's show. Who? So today we have me, Jess. Rob. And me, Idwin. How are we all? I was just thinking, it's never good identifying myself. I always do it like, and you're on the show with me. And then I'm like, mm, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So bad to with say. Me. I'm, I'm doing good. How's everyone's like isolation week this week? Checking in. It's been a week of stage three. Are we in stage three at the moment? Stage three, moving to stage four soon. I yeah, yeah. 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 How's it been? I've been using this as a time to get onto all the projects that I said I've been going to do for a very long time. And now I actually kind of have a bit more time to do that. I'm very oh, proud of you, Rob. Yeah, yeah as am been, I. <laughs> it's been a good, good, in a strange way, a productivity boost of things that just make me happy to do. So, yeah, I've been doing. See, I'm very jealous of that because I feel like I'm the opposite. I've been making a mounding list of things to do and I <laughs> felt that I haven't got around to any of them so my mission this week is to sort of stay a bit more positive about mm. trying to get through them mm. Mm. I'm the same old I've still been doing huge amounts of gardening which the rain this weekend has put an end to uh mm. and house improvement so much house so much house improvement <laughs> yeah really, apparently Bunnings like a sales have spiked with just the amount of people buying house improvement things because they're like they're at home staring at their four walls being like <laughs> i need to fix this well, and a lot of sort of veggie watching. patches as well mm-hmm. yes yeah i mean it's a great time to like if you wanted to repaint your walls or like try and spice something up inside your house mm-hmm. it's a great time to do it mm-hmm. my favorite one's also been people are taking the opportunity to do like hairstyles and like yeah. really go to town oh, yeah. on like you know self-expression yeah. <laughs> which is kind of fun I love it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's been kind of my thing anyone got any interesting facts I was thinking it might be hard for our facts segment seeing as you know we're not really being exposed to them everywhere but have you been reading anything interesting or I actually have it's not really like a massive fact mm. but not that I have the money for it, but we've, my family and I have been really into uh, board games lately. And um, my little brother, of course, wants a Nintendo Switch. So I did a little bit of research into Nintendo and they actually began with producing board games. Ah. So that's my fun fact of today. And then they went through a period of many years <laughs> um, until they reached the manufacturing of eventual video games. So there you go. Ah. There you have it. That is actually with board games. That's a very funky and time or context dependent fact because <laughs> we are also playing a huge amount of board games. Yes. <laughs> yes. I um, learned this week um, about the origin of the name of IKEA. I don't know if any of you have heard this story. 
Mm-mm. No. Ikea is not a Swedish word. It's a made-up word. And so the first two letters, I and K, are the initials of the founder of the company. And then E and A are to do with the initials of the location of where it was set up. And so it kind of combines those together to create the word Ikea. Mm, I like that. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. My one is also rooted in like the etymology of something. Um, I was wondering what April was because I should know what all the calendar months, you know how they always say the calendar months are named after certain things yeah. and they're very memorable yeah. things. I always forget about them. So I looked up what April was about and there's like so many different theories of what April could be interpreted as, but I found one theory that I really like. It's really cute. So I thought I'd share that. Um, apparently one of the ideas is that the April is rooted in the Latin word um, aprilis, which is derived from the Latin word to open, which could be a reference to the opening of blossoming flowers or trees during the month of April in the Northern Hemisphere. So I love that. Think yourself, yeah. Think of yourself as living in the blooming month. Like lots of, I know it's, it's a crisis is going on and there's a lot of very, very sad imagery going around, but just, just think of the blossom. <laughs> Definitely going to start calling September, April now, just to like embody that yeah. blossomingness in the southern hemisphere world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, I really yeah. like that. I'm very hopeful that that was actually the etymology of that. I feel word. like we should change September to Southern April, so we have Northern April and Southern April. It might be the way I to like go. That. It might be the Maybe. way to go. Maybe. Um, apart from that, coming up on our show, our show is going to be a little bit of a mix. Rob, who who have you got on? Um, so I will be interviewing an architecture and urbanist from London. Her name's Silvana Tahir, and she set up the blog that I talked about on the show last week called COVID Windows, and it's about people who are just taking a photograph of their window at their home and then sharing them on an on a Instagram blog. And so we'll just be talking about what was the kind of motivation for setting that up and how we actually, this is, I guess, a bit more of just like a discussion about how our understanding of home might change over this period of self-isolation. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Cool, cool. Um, For my interview, it's kind of following on a similar sort of thing. I'm talking to Bill Brown, a researcher at the Australian Institute, around a recent petition that they've actually released calling on the government to adopt an epidemic response committee like the ones we've seen in New Zealand. So what the Australian Institute is kind of arguing, and I'll, I'll leave it to the interview obviously to explain at length, but is stating that during this time of emergency powers and emergency responses, it'd be really good to institute a committee that kind of oversees government decisions to make sure we hold accountability and transparency during, you know, this extreme time. So two COVID-19 stories. And then hopefully later on the show, we'll also have um, be joined by kind of some of the creators behind the emerging writers festival, which is actually going online this year. Uh, Very exciting that they're still running, still running their event as per normal. Uh, so hopefully sure young writers get their voices out as well and absolutely and I was I was so happy to find this story because it's like you know COVID-19 has cancelled a lot of different things for a lot of different people which is of course what is what needs to happen but it kind of sucks so it's exciting that this event at least is still going on in an online capacity and I thought we'd discuss with the organizers what that means for young writers and yeah what events they'll be running because hmm, that should be an interesting transition Absolutely. Before that, we will jump into some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right 
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, the 8th of April. Now we'll be heading into alternative news. And our first story is sort of an animal-related story. Um, Kind of feel-good story, actually. Um, This time specifically in Australia. Um, With the 2019-2020 bushfire season officially over in Australia, as of the 31st of March, the first rescued koalas are starting to be released in the wild. The koalas were rescued from their bushfire-ravaged habitats last year and have been in the care of zoos and animal hospitals ever since. Now rescuers have started to release the koalas back into the wild and in some cases even back to the trees where they were actually found, which is awesome. (laughs) Um, 12 12 koalas were released on the 25th and 27th of March to the Blue Mountains by non-profit organisation Science for Wildlife. The koalas will continue to be radio tracked to make sure they settle in either their original habitats or new habitats, depending on how well areas have coped in the bushfires. In similar news relating to the bushfires and the 2019-2020 bushfire season, um, so that, that this past season actually doubled Australia's greenhouse emissions. And as a result of the extensive damage, the country has changed the rules of its working holiday visa scheme to actually allow young Britons to count volunteering in bushfire-ravaged areas towards obtaining a second or third G visa. Obviously, this is hard to follow through right now, but it's sort of, I think it's quite good news for our environment and for foreigners who want to come into, you know, the country at a later date. Absolutely. And following on from you, Jess, I've also got an animal story. Uh, Nearly 100 critically endangered sea turtles have hatched on the deserted beaches of Brazil. Their first steps, uh, this is reported by The Guardian, going unnoticed because of coronavirus uh, restrictions that prohibit people from gathering at the region sands. And conservationists are super happy about this because they're kind of like, these turtles are going to do their thing, enter into the uh, back into the ocean. And yeah, because they are critically endangered, having a hundred hatch this season fantastic news uh for brazil and you know <sighs> that species and I, I thought turtles who can pass up a turtle story am i right like it's not i can't so <laughs> <laughs> no that's great to hear it's really it's really cool to see the um the environmental impacts of what's happening at the moment and you know it'll be interesting to see in the future what happens when humans don't really have that much um to do with you know animals and the environment Mm -hmm. um so as isolation does continue around the world many of us have experienced or are experiencing a deeper sense of loneliness yet a website entitled morelovelettersdotcom has envisioned a place for people to leave and receive anonymous gifts of love letters (laughs) um new yorker hannah brenshaw actually created the website after experiencing sort of a bit of depression herself when moving to New York and feeling sort of that alone feeling. Um, She began by leaving love letters around the city on buses at the library or even actually she said in clothing store coat pockets for strangers to find. Um, So soon after doing this, she created a website based organization that launches letter writing campaigns to support individuals who need a little uplifting. Um, The random letters of kindness in communities are also encouraged um, but this site actually allows you to send physically in the mail letters of love. Um, anyone can post a request for letters on behalf of someone they know. Um, so I thought this may be even a great idea for like the elderly, especially. Um, and the site posts new batches of requests weekly and invites visitors to respond to any or all of them. 
Each request includes a deadline for participation, after which volunteers bundle up all the submitted letters and deliver them to the recipient. This isn't a pen pal service um, with recipients and senders remaining anonymous. Like that's the whole point to remain anonymous. Um, the community, there's actually a community of 42,000 on Facebook and the organization has stated that they've mailed more than 250,000 letters to people in need since 2011. And as you can imagine, it's got, it's skyrocketed, um, this year. Um, so yeah, I just thought that was very cool. I, when you actually said yourself that, um, yeah, yeah I, I, there's been some super cute stuff to come out, like community spirit to come out of COVID-19, mm-hmm. which is nice. I mean, we've had seen those images of um, European cities like banging their pots all in unison. Super amazing. Uh, another one I've been particularly enjoying on the touch of like love letters has been roommate. There's been a roommate series on like Facebook uh, of roommates trying to remake famous paintings. And I got to tell you, seeing like a 30 year old man with a beard, doing like the woman with the pearl earring. I, I didn't know I needed it in my life, but I did. <laughs> There's just been these lovely creative ways that people are, like, as you said, um, also touching on the point, Jess, there is actually a service that can, I believe it's in England at the moment, but you could probably find it with a bit of Googling where you can get um, matched up with an elderly person who is in isolation and actually, you know, be able to communicate back and forth yeah give everyone i did also see that um i think actually for all you listeners out there on the rundown this week i will put the details for what i just said we'll find the actual name of that if you if we we'll touch back on that um but i'll put more loveletters.com on the rundown too so anyone who wants to get involved can go look at our rundown after the show yeah the wonderful ideas <laughs> Um, and with that, I, I suppose we wrap up alternative news and go into our first interview. Rob, I reckon we start with yours. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So up next, we'll have Silvana Tahe. Um, but before then, we'll just play some songs from the 3CR library. Loving war, there's poetry and pain And you can hate it and need it all the same They can lie and they can lock you in the dark Cause you're young and you're broke but kids you got hard There's writing on the walls but they can't read this It's writing on the walls but they can't read this it's riding on the walls, but they can't read it. It's riding on the walls, but they can't read it. Oh, hold up your chin. Oh, hold up your chin. Skin. 
Here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa. Every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things unfold. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know, it's been going for a while now, hopefully it goes it keeps going, you know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419 8377. 
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and up next we have Silvina Tahe, who is an architect and a writer. She is currently teaching at the Architectural Association in London, where her work focuses on the relationship between nature and the city. And so she'll be speaking with us today about a really fascinating community art project that she's set up in light of coronavirus and self-isolation. And it's a project called COVID Windows, which we actually talked about on the show last week. Welcome to the show, Silvana. Hello. It's very good to be here. So I wanted to ask, you recently set up this Instagram page called COVID Windows. Tell us, what is this project about and what was your motivation to set it up? Um, well, it, it's essentially a project about people that are self-isolating. Um, we're all there across the entire world. We're all stuck at home. Um, we probably find ourselves gazing out the window quite a lot. Um, so I asked the community at large to send pictures of their windows and the views that they're gazing at um, in, a, in an effort to feel a little bit less alone mm. um, at the moment. And it, it started quite naively when I was working at my computer and I thought, you know what, I'm probably going to be looking out this window for a while now. <laughs> and I, I just thought, I wonder how many other people are having this thought and are kind of stuck behind this one window thinking, I really want to go outside. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's about kind of sharing the fact that we're all in this together in very different ways. We have all very different settings, um, but, but essentially for the first time in I think a very long time, we're dealing with very similar conditions. Mm. And the thing that I really love about this is that it is very much a community-based artwork. It's very much people contributing yeah. to it. And so why did you think that particularly a community-based artwork was so important at this point of time? Again, it, I, I think it is so much because of the kind of isolation that we're facing at the moment. I think generally as a society and as a generation, um, we have a tendency to be, particularly in cities, um, it's more common to live alone or, or to live very separate from your family or to have your family in other countries. So I think anyway, in today's world, it's very easy to feel alone. Mm. Um, so that, I mean, for me, I, I think it, it started from a very selfish desire to not feel alone mm. at the moment and to kind of reach out and ask people if they were kind of feeling similar things. Does really connect um, you to a community in a sense. Exactly, yeah. Obviously, what's happening with coronavirus, it's it's everything that's negative about public gathering, right? Like you don't go out, so you don't get infected and, and all these things. But I think the kind of the weird thing about this particular pandemic is it's really forcing us to find new ways of interacting with each other. Mm. Um, so, so that we can still connect. Cause I think we all very much have an innate desire to connect with people. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. And it's just, it's in different forms now is what we're trying to exactly. say. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so this project's only been running for a short time, only a few weeks, but what have you yeah. observed about how we are living in this moment and how, what people are starting to share about their windows and their homes? I mean, it, it's very funny because be, because the parameters of the project are relatively strict. It's just the view from your window. There's very little that people can kind of mess around with. Mm. Um, so the one thing that I've noticed that changes quite significantly from person to person is the depth with which they'll photograph their window. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean how much of their interior life they're willing to show. Yeah. 
Do you, do you see what I mean? So some people will go right up against the window and try and obscure it as much as possible to give nothing away. Mm. Whereas others will kind of let you into their own domesticity a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's a funny ask because the people that are sending me these images, they don't know me. I've received a few messages asking like, who are you? What is this? You know, in case it's some like dodgy government project or something. Um, so it, it's, it's a nice way to see how, what, what people are willing to share with you or willing to kind of bring into the conversation. Absolutely. And you kind of touch on this interesting point which is about rawness and that's what i find really fascinating about this project is that we generally lived in a very polished world particularly on instagram or facebook yeah. or any kind of social media yet this project as well as coronavirus more generally has started to encourage us to sort of be more publicly raw so we're seeing yeah. leaders delivering national addresses from the couch and podcasts like this sort of cast in the bedrooms and so how might this moment start to change our understanding of what is public space and what is private space i'm going to go on a slight tangent here i think public space for a very for for a while now has actually been failing mm -hmm. um so public space increasingly becomes less and less uh public and increasingly more commercial it's more essentially it's an excuse to find another type of consumption. Mm -hmm. um, so, so for me, the fact that people are asked to kind of engage with one another in a forum where there is nothing for you to do other than to engage with the person immediately in front of you, which is what I think public space ought to do, mm -hmm. um, and kind of stripping away that background. It, in, a, in that sense, I think there's no reason why the domestic space or the kind of camera space of our computers can't be a new public space mm. and, 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 and potentially a, a more successful one than the public space that we're seeing in many countries right now. Well, it'll be quite interesting sort of once coronavirus is dealt with, once public spaces or public spaces, inverted commas, open up, whether the people yeah. will still be kind of flocking to them or whether we will become more comfortable with our kind of internal lives or inviting people more into our homes and having that as kind of replacing the public spaces of the city. It could be quite an interesting development so this project is very inherently focused on domesticity and the home yeah. and so how do you believe coronavirus might change our relationship with our own home and our perception of what a home is for you know might it shift our understanding of a home as less to do with rest and recovery and maybe it's more to do with work and production how might it change i mean again it's a bit of a tricky question it's a funny thing because the pandemic is is hugely it's a pandemic it's everywhere <laughs> and in some cities the home has already become a place of production hmm. what i'm kind of hoping will will happen now um i think there's the potential for for the home to really um be a place of self-reflection which in a sense is the exact opposite of a productive space in hmm. the economic sense but more on the kind of personal sense I'm hoping that that is going to kind of continue as a trend. I think a lot of people have struggled with being at home because it kind of, you need a degree of comfort with yourself, right? If you're your only companion, it's very hard. It kind of um, self-reflection upon you, whether you like it or not. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and I think that's a really, really brilliant thing. And I, and I hope in that sense that if people are more comfortable with that, the, the, like the value of, of home, again, is somehow reasserted in a, in a non-economic sense, but in a, on a personal sense. 
Yeah, it could in some ways it's making yourself more productive and not in the economic sense, but you're actually exactly. yourself more. Yeah. yeah. And another thing that I think will be interesting in this is that sort of we as humans have a tendency to want to change our environments. We, you know, we create our built environments and we augment our natural ones for the worse, most arguably. And now we're sort of confined to such a small space. How do you yeah. think we could start to redesign or reimagine and reuse the spaces that we're already so familiar with? Well, the biggest thing that I think should come out of this is understanding the relationship that people need to with regards to the outdoors. Mm. Um, so, so in a funny way, I think a lot of people that are struggling the most are maybe those that are stuck in apartments. And I think too much of the way that we live today is kind of entirely separate from from the world around us, um, from really simple things like the earth and worms and sunshine, you, you know what I mean? So I think when, the, when, when we start to see the value of being around non-polished things, like things that somehow connect you in a, in a non-obvious way, I, I think that's hopefully something that will really come, come out of this, that you know, people need to have that connection irrespective of where they, they live. Mm. And I think what I'm sort of hoping will happen is that because everyone's more or less confined to their homes, that's a, that's a very man-made built environment and having that craving exactly. for nature, maybe this will lead to sort of more thinking about designing cities or designing homes and places to integrate nature much more, recognizing exactly. how much we actually need it in our daily lives. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so finally, before finishing up, I wanted to ask, how is your personal understanding of home and community shifted during this period of self-isolation? So community, this past two weeks has completely shocked my understanding of community. As, as a city dweller, I'm very skeptical sometimes. And I've, through the COVID windows projects and the messages that I've been getting, you know, most of the windows that I'm uploading are from people that I don't know, like the vast majority, 90% from countries I've never been to. And it's so beautiful to see people reaching out and and really wanting to be part of it and wanting to be part of the conversation it's the most uplifting thing and a in complete surprise i'm <laughs> way more confident in the community now than i was kind of 2 weeks ago <laughs> in in terms of my relation to domesticity i've only thing i've realized is um I, I really enjoy cleaning. That's pretty much the only thing. I can spend an entire day cleaning and not be bothered. Um, so I think I've learned more about the community than I have my own home at the moment. But yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for coming on to the show, Silvana. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Uh, that was Savannah Tahe. She is an architect and writer, and she's currently teaching at the Architectural Association in London, where her work focuses on the relationship between nature and the city. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Put your hands up if you love your body. Put your hands up if you love your mommy. Put your hands up if you love your skin. What you wear are the clothes you're in. Do you ever feel there's no way out? Raise them if somebody lets you down. This one here is for the kind and the peaceful. Put your hands up for the regular people. I don't see nothing wrong with being regular people. Stay right here where we belong with the regular people. We don't have to sing that song just to feel like we're equal. No, we don't have to Take 
patience, they can lead us to astray from the way that we are. Need patience, no need for chasing. There's always tomorrow. I call things just how I see them. No filter, no alter ego. No big revelations. I'ma take a break, huh? Just learn what and who we are is good enough. shown that in response to COVID-19, New Zealand has been tougher and faster, moving to harder shutdown laws across the country. Now, some news outlets have accused it of entering a brave new world scenario and others have praised it for its quick action. But to avoid any sort of abuse of power, last week the New Zealand government established the Epidemic Response Committee, tasked with overseeing any matter relating to the government management of the COVID-19 epidemic. Their aim is to pick up any mistakes or misdoings within the coordination of New Zealand's response to the crisis. Now, the Australian Institute is calling for Australia to do the same. I caught up with Bill from the Research Institute to tell us a little bit more. Good morning, Bill. Good morning. Um, Now, the New Zealand Committee is formed up of 11 members, representatives from majority parties across New Zealand, and chaired by the opposition leader, Simon Bridges. Their task is to create inquiries and reports on the actions of the government during COVID-19. I I wanted to get your kind of breakdown why you guys are suggesting that Australia should have a similar model. New Zealand was prompted to set up its multi-party parliamentary oversight committee after it closed down its parliament for five weeks. And there was a feeling that during this time, particularly from the opposition parties, uh, that a break like that would stop Parliament from being able to perform its traditional oversight roles. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Australia, with the exception of a a short resumption for one day next week, we're closing down our Parliament for five months. So it's even more urgent that we have some other kind of accountability mechanism that can provide oversight and democratic accountability uh, to the decisions of the government understanding that they do need to make decisions urgently and uh, make very significant changes. 
Absolutely. And why is the shutting down of Parliament such a, I suppose, concern for dem democratic process and just that sort of, yeah, how we function? In general, Parliament provides an important oversight mechanism. So the committee structure in particular, as well as uh, questions in Parliament, allow opposition parties and crossbenchers to ask difficult questions of the government, to pursue issues that the government might have missed, and just to pass a second set of eyes over legislation and regulation uh, that would otherwise go unscrutinised until it's too late. So having parliament or a parliamentary body able to keep doing those things becomes even more important when the government is making such unprecedented decisions as they have to to respond to this unprecedented crisis. Gotcha. And it, it strikes me with like such a mixed cabinet. Morrison has been consistently moving people like opposition leaders like Albanese out of the crisis communication compared to Jacinda, who seems to be comparatively inviting her counterpart in. What do you think is the strengths and weaknesses on that side? There have been calls from a number of sources for Anthony Albanese to be included in the national cabinet that's overseeing the crisis. Um, there have even been some who've suggested that cabinet should get much larger and much broader to include multiple members of the federal opposition, multiple crossbenchers, uh, and even perhaps experts who aren't parliamentarians. So there's definitely an idea that decision-making should be as broadly distributed as possible, and there should be as many voices in the room as possible. Uh, the advantage of a committee like the one that New Zealand has set up is that it represents all parties in the New Zealand Parliament, of which there are about seven, uh, and it gives uh, almost daily updates. So the committee sits three times a week. It's already had its full complement of sittings for this week, which is the first week it's been open. Uh, and already it's raised a number of issues that we've kind of seen discussed in Australia as well. Mm -hmm. So they've been talking about issues like uh, how rental arrangements are gonna work, or when economic and health data is going to become available, which are exactly the same kind of issues that are concerning us here in Australia. Gotcha. But you have an independent body kind of bringing these up and providing kind of space for that amongst the crisis. That's right. And mm. The beauty of the committee, mm. which would have representatives from the government parties on it as well, uh, would be that it can be a constructive form of oversight. Uh, in New Zealand, the opposition parties have been very clear that they're not in this to score points or to undermine the government's efforts, but they do offer different perspectives and do allow for the government's decisions in this crisis to be given a, a second checking. And I suppose, I mean, this comes for me in the backdrop of kind of Scott Morrison's overall leadership style, which is very much he likes to keep centralised control. I mean, we've had... Uh, issues made inaccessible to media, he centralised power through cabinet, very much a business approach to the crisis. What misuses of power are the Australian Institute kind of identifying as a worry, whether it's, you know, Scott Morrison or just generally the crisis? I think there are two different types of concern here. And the first is simple mistakes. Um, so everyone can be acting with the best of intentions and still because they're making decisions so urgently, end up making the wrong decisions in some places that will need correcting. So I think an important function of the oversight committee would be just to uh, 
provide that kind of very helpful constructive support. Uh, but I think you're right more generally that there's a worry at this point in time that government responses could be uh, unreasonable. Mm. Uh, in some cases, people have been saying that the government's response has been unreasonably small or unreasonably slow. But now with dramatic changes in the extent of the restrictions that people are under, the opposite fear arises as well, that the government response could be too severe. Um, we see already at the state level that you have uh, a number of people who've been fined for breaching those restrictions. Mm. Uh, and that's a, a worrying sign. It might be necessary, but it's something that needs to be looked into. Gotcha. So it's this, it's this accountability, transparency, constant measure. Um, I suppose the, the argument I've got against this, or I've heard against this, is the idea that Australia has not employed as of yet such extreme measures as New Zealand. So there's not necessarily the need for this extra fail-safe. I mean, what do you say to this? Do you think it's unnecessary bureaucracy or do you think we're heading towards that sort of, you know, shutdown? Uh, there's no doubt that Australia has gone a lot further in the last month than it looked like it would. So I think uh, even if we haven't gone as far as some other countries, uh, there's no need to hold back on setting up a committee now, particularly because we have quite a narrow window. Mm -hmm. If it's true that Parliament only comes back for one day next week before it continues its five-month-long break, mm -hmm. uh, then we need to anticipate what the government response is going to look like in five months' time, not just what it's looked like so far. Um, but I'd also add that uh, even, even outside of government scrutiny, one of the important functions that the New Zealand Committee has played so far has been to draw attention to issues other than that of the government's response. Uh, so in New Zealand, they had issues with some airports not following the proper 1.5 metre distancing rules. That was ventilated in the committee and is being addressed kind of immediately after the committee ended. And since we've seen problems in Australian airports as well, that's one example of a, a function the committee could play. That makes total sense. And I suppose just touching on that narrow window, now Parliament does apparently go back to seat, uh, sit on Wednesday next week, or sorry, the petition that the Australian Institute has set up. Could you kind of run us through it? Is it going to be flawed to Parliament? How are we going to get that platformed? And how can people get involved? So... The Australian Institute's petition is available from our website and it reiterates the call from the National Integrity Committee uh, that we need to set up a, uh, an oversight committee uh, like the one in New Zealand. So anyone who's interested in joining that call can go onto the Australian Institute's website at tai.org.au uh, and sign up as well to reiterate that message. Uh, and we'll make sure that that petition, which has already been signed by several thousand Australians, mm. uh, is made known to decision makers, parliamentarians, both in government and in the rest of the parliament, uh, so that they know just how much popular support there is for a measure like this. Absolutely. And we'll be making it available on our website too, to hopefully uh, give it a bit more backing, a bit more platform. Well, thank you so much, Bill, for joining us um, to, to discuss about this. I think it's very easy to forget about it as the crisis kind of rages on, but this, the, these sorts of things are happening in the background. So thank you so much for coming on and explaining its importance. Thanks a lot for having me, Edwin.
So on my train thoughts this week, well, it wasn't quite a tram thought. It was more me sitting on the couch pretending to be on a tram. But I was starting to think about like how are we entertaining ourselves in this period of self-isolation? So before jumping into the discussion, I wanted to ask how you guys been entertaining yourself during this period? Well, I, I, my phone. Mm-hmm. A lot, and I've been going. Through, I've been churning through a lot of applications on my phone, but also board games too. Okay, they're very so. physically based. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I win. I've been trying to do some books. Been trying to get back into book reading, but honestly, I found it exhausting just moving from screen to book. So I've actually been doing a lot of exercise, like okay. a lot of physical exercise, just to try and break up the monotony <laughs> of just sitting <laughs> constantly. <laughs> Well, I, I'm glad that both of you are doing like very non-screen based things because I don't know, discussions with my sisters and her friends and then my friends and various others, everyone's becoming very screen based now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was speaking actually with my sister about, I don't know if you've heard of the app TikTok, you've probably heard of it by yes. about now, um, and how addictive this app can be. So for people who are less familiar with it, which was me a month ago, essentially, uh, TikTok's a new kind of social media app that enables users to share videos between six to 60 seconds long. Um, and then they're shared globally. So I think it kind of like Instagram, but for videos. And so the types of videos that are shared are pretty varied. You get lip syncs to short skits, the dances and kind of everything in between. And thanks to a very complex and aggressive algorithmic process, it's becomes highly addictive in what serves up to you. And it really does suck you into the app. And as a result, it's meant it's become hugely popular. Mm. But I think what's really interesting about this is particularly how it relates to our current era of self-isolation. And so there's a strong currency for the value of TikTok, which is authenticity. Because a lot of the videos are just, they're made at home. They're not particularly sort of like perfected, but they've got this kind of sense of rushed sort of funness to them. And we're kind of in this era where at the moment we have the Prime Minister of New Zealand addressing the public from her living room and all these other kind of leaders being much more casual in the way that they're communicating with their audience. And so to me, there's kind of like this sense of like public rawness at this point of time that we're starting to see the backdrops to the lives of people that we don't often see. And so I think a strong reason that this authentic entertainment in inverted commas is becoming so popular is that we're kind of collectively experiencing self-isolation there's this sense of camaraderie that we're all trying to live our lives and we're all kind of living it together and that's kind of a unique point in time um and this is what i find really fascinating about tiktok is that it's an app that fuels the creation of videos in your home as a space and your home becomes a space for creativity and collaboration And I don't know, I'm starting to wonder, are we moving away from more kind of constructed films or escapist films? And instead, we're more entertained by kind of home skits, which are created in the bedroom, in the living room. And we seem less fussed about video quality and more about relatable entertainment um, that really mirrors our current situation of isolation. And so I wanted to ask both of you, do you think that this moment of time post-coronavirus could make us reconsider the kind of entertainment we desire? And rather than looking for sort of big Bolly, uh, Hollywood or Bollywood films, which are kind of escapist, we're more interested in kind of realist, more inverted commas, authentic entertainment. Do you want me to? <laughs> Just or shall I? Um, 
it's hard with me because I mean, I have an awareness of TikTok. It's been around for a little bit. It's, I would say I have a very negative view of TikTok a lot of the time. A lot of the time it can be very trashy, but I have enjoyed interpretations or videos to come out of the coronavirus. And like my, my favorite one recently was like, um, uh, they've taken a recording of Scott Morrison's press release and there's a bunch of different people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just, just to the exact same. Yeah, no, no, I'm like doing the movements. <laughs> yeah. There's been like, this, there's been, and there's been like these different interpretations of this press conference and they are hilarious. They're so good. So yeah. in, in that way, I do agree. Like it is a collective experience. And I think it's really interesting also, like when we look back on this crisis, we're going to have a bunch of TikTok videos as our documentation of like what people <laughs> did during it. Like, you know how many, like archaeologists, like, like they scrape up and they're like, Oh wow. They spent their time spinning wheels or, you know, hula hoops. They're going to be like, people spent their time making dance montage videos. <laughs> like, so I think in that way it can be fun. Um, I think there's still a lot of presentation and like in that sort of way, like it, it TikToks are very manufactured by the individual and there are certain ones, as you said, like it's algorithmic to which ones we see and which ones become popular. So I think there's still a bit of control uh, like that I would associate with maybe like a Hollywood film where it's like the person is creating a product. Yeah. What do you think, Jess? Just tossing I I do agree with the points that you're making. I just, I think at this point, point in time I think it is really important for all of us to feel that realist entertainment I think especially in the globalization that we have manifested and created in the past decades mm. knowing that we are literally all in this together yeah. I think that something like a platform like TikTok is of some great I think it is of great importance to Oh, even like just to not make you feel so alone, like seeing people, you know, going, th- and even, even if it is sort of C grade, D grade entertainment of people doing videos of that sort of humour, it's mm. it still sort of keeps our society together in that way. And I think that's quite important as well, a form of entertainment. Something gonna... that I've noticed. So you got Edwin? <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say also, I, I totally agree with the idea that um, providing realist entertainment helps empathy. I know there's been some cases in TikTok videos where like um, there was this one series where girls were doing, were dancing to messages from abusive exes. And I I mean, just aggressive exes and they're leaving these really nasty messages. And it was so subversive and powerful because these girls were doing this, like were dancing to these, these texts and, but they were giving an insight to the kind of the culture of uh, that we have of like toxic masculinity towards women. So in that way, TikToks, although being 60 seconds, can really help break down, like, or, or create empathy, I suppose. And I have seen I that think it during too. COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Even before, like, pre-COVID, I think it was getting to that with various topics, even with um, toxic relationships and any topic of, of such nature. But uh, right now, I think it's quite important for us to sort of, especially when we are on, it's a technological age, we are on social media 24-7. I think it's important to have. But talking post-COVID, I'm not sure whether we'll be actually set free of the escapist idea of entertainment. Mm-hmm. I think right now TikTok is great for us, but not yeah, I'm future. not sure about post. Yeah. yeah. Well, Might um, die like uh, Vine. Yeah. <laughs> I want to build on a point that you mentioned before, Ibwen, this kind of these people coming out with like quite creative 60-second videos mm. that can be quite powerful, almost like pieces of artwork. And so, so whether this is going to be, whether TikTok could be a platform that kind of democratizes entertainment. So we've seen throughout history that 
you know, if you wanted to go into film and television, you had to go to Los Angeles and you had to do the slog there and work your way up. Then kind of fast forward to maybe within the last five years and you can start to sort of jump onto that ladder by sort of creating an Instagram account and then you might get picked up by a, a director or a screenwriter and then you start to make your own TV show. So that's happened to a few people. And then I wonder, is this like a third phase now where there's kind of not even a, maybe an interest in LA uh, films anymore or TV, less so. Um, and actually it's more just anyone can be an entertainer. And I guess, is, is this a good thing or do you think this is a thing that could happen? Or is this, as you say before, just perhaps just for this unique period of time? Jess? Well, I was actually, I don't know whether you know about the Hype House. No. Okay, so the Hype House is sort of something that's come out of TikTok where people, young sort of kids have actually, who have made it in the TikTok field, have mm-hmm. gone into a house and who are making creative content for TikTok, like you said, have climbed the ladder in this sort mm-hmm. of third, third face of entertainment so what you just said is sort of like it's actually started to happen like the foundations are there for it to be possible like it's a different sort of fame altogether and a sort of influence there's it's like a new breed of influencers um yeah no it's a really interesting point Jess because it kind of it sort of shows this inevitability that we will kind of lead to a very produced form of entertainment or that there will be people who think that good entertainment has to be produced. Like maybe that's the sort of condition that has to be shifted because it seems to be like we're heading down the same track as we did with Instagram and obviously with all kind of Hollywood style films. Edwin, do you have any thoughts? Um, I think, I think it's, it's this big question of the internet and accessibility. On one hand, by making it more accessible to everyone, you get a lot more like amateur and like rubbishy films, which are like, that just clog up your, your feed. On the other hand, I love the fact that it taps into everyone's potential to be a storyteller and it really celebrates it. I mean, mm. you know how drama kids are always kind of like, you know, the, the bullied kids of high school maybe or like that sort of made a bit of a joke of. I think TikTok allows kids to really experiment with storytelling and tell stories and I, I, I love that. So yeah. well, this I is something that I want is whether it'll lead to more cultural diversity within entertainment because there aren't those sort of systemic barriers. I mean, mm. this could be argued both ways, but because there aren't the sort of like unconscious biases of the people who are choosing which scripts to write and who to hire and who to mm. be involved in the production, I, I guess it, that power being translated to an algorithm, that could be good or bad, depending how the algorithm is designed, but that could actually lead to more cultural diversity and mm. diverse opinion, backgrounds and stories. I think it can. I think it has the potential to, because, I mean, I have seen a, a quite a mix of like different um, cultures and like, yeah, different individuals getting it, which might not get an option in like, you know, your more mainstream channels. Mm-hmm. I do remain skeptical to the algorithm algorithm of TikTok itself and what episode, what content is promoting, just because I know a lot of the content I've seen has been very predominantly white or like the people that potentially like as just mentioned who they're like, funding to make tiktok content have been predominantly white so there's my stress on that that's my natural kind of like cynicism towards it but i do think Mm -hmm. you're right with that idea of potential i think it has huge potential Mm. i think i also agree with that potential aspect of it the only thing that i think is an issue and that is obviously make this quite a, a slow progressive influencing sort of platform is that i think the accessibility issue of it is that these sort of, I don't want to call it a fad type thing, as you were saying, like Vine versus Instagram versus now TikTok, 
I think they're quite a generational target. They've got a generational target. Like I've seen different people of different ages, but it's predominantly the younger generation. And if I were to try and get involved on TikTok, I feel like it would just be, it just feels sort of unnatural for me. I'm not sure whether that's just like going to be a growth, a progressively uh, just in time, whether that will change or not. But at the moment I feel like it is predominantly a, the, and the algorithm too, that's sort of what messes it up of the whole possibility that it could be a culturally diverse platform of education and influence in entertainment. I think the yeah. algorithm and the accessibility problems are what could hold it back, but it does, I think it does have potential. Yeah, well, thank you for both of your... I went to share a thought. Nope, nope, you go. <laughs> um, we'll edit that bit out. Well, thank you all for your thoughts. Um, yeah, no, I think I'm, I'm hoping to be optimistic about it as a platform because I think, like, it, it would be great if we could start to have reduced barriers to entry and a sort of democratisation of entertainment and who entertains. Um, but, yeah, obviously that power lies in how the algorithm is constructed and what propels content forwards. Um, and whether that's consciously or subconsciously that occurs. But I'm hopeful. I'm hoping, you know, that it leads to some interesting changes in, in how mm. entertainment is produced. Yeah. Um, you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, we've got a few community service announcements coming up. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. None of us is chained. None of us are free. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters.
finally, we're going to finish off the show with some audio from the Activism at the Margins conference that I attended. Today, we're listening to the words of Willie Brim, who is a traditional owner, cultural custodian, bush doctor, and songman of the Bulawai people of the Karanda in far north Queensland. Within his speech, Willie explores his role as a songman and the significance of music and activism in struggle and survival of ongoing colonisation. Now, unfortunately, I did come in just after he'd introduced himself, uh, but this is him talking about early days, forming a band, and kind of the role that they had within the civil rights movement occurring at the end of the late 70s. They're on, then come out, then within five years after being out of the mission system, we've got white, so-called, like, uh, Aborigines running around, naked, on our riverbanks, and so these were different type of people, we thought. And they were, because they brought along different things, like art, uh, creative things, music, and a different type of music. And that's where I got very interested in using music as a voice. I love music, so uh, I started uh, teaching myself how to play guitar, and the other instruments that I do play now, like the keyboards, the bass, the drums. And uh, they had music with them. They had the electronic gears. They had, uh, as I said, brains. And all that stuff, they made it. They made that stuff in Karanda. It was all made in the little houses. And we'd go along as, as younger ones and look at what they're doing. And they'd share the interest with us. And I was asking a couple of the old, uh, couple of the people from them, that group, to uh, if, if they could uh, lend us their gear so we could have something to play with. And so those group, they, they made us a full band set, a bass amp, a, a uh, guitar amp, a mixer. And it's all I made. And wow, from there, songwriting in another way began. We were so used to singing songs like uh, that was on the radio, Patsy Cline, uh, Slim Dusty. You'd know all the old country and western songs that were on the radios in the days. So this is what we are growing up to. And now we started with our campaign with music. So I started writing songs about what was going on with our mob, our dreams, our hopes. And I didn't realise it was going to become popular or people started to love what we were doing and we become one of the most prominent forces of music in the country. We were supporting all the major acts in this land, the, uh, the, the red gums of the days, International acts like uh, UB40, um, Steel Pulse, NXS, Wendy Matthews, Eurogliders, Hunters and Collectors. I mean, I can keep on going. There's a lot of bands out there that uh, we've shared the stage with over the years. And the thing was to get our message out so when people plant the seed of unconsciousness in their minds about Aboriginal people and their struggles, I got a song called I Don't Want to Be No Slave. 
song I wrote while I was working on the railways when I was younger. And uh, another song. I've got that many songs, I just... Uh, <laughs> the songs that... We, like, I don't want to be no slave. Get up, I say. Like, they're building them houses, but where do we stay? Everybody, don't run away. We'll watch them come, and we'll watch them go. So... It's time for you to know. We'll get up and we'll stand up for our rights. Songs like that that empowers our peoples to start singing. Other songs. Um, you knock me down, but I'll get up again. You can try and try again. You was my enemy, but now my friend. You'll knock me down, but I'll get up again. So what is, what is this you put in front of me? All your laws and your policies, they're made of glass, now I can see, right through the other side, where the dark secrets hide, just like genocide. Lyrics like that is what I like to put and have installed into my song, so there's real meanings of the music and the lyrics of education and of value to our listeners. Our music is known to uh, heal people as well. We use it as a medicine. The same way like our ancestors used music. Singing, dancing. The band was so good in organising meetings up there when we had to get together and talk about issues in the community, particularly with the police. The police were our number one enemies. And... Uh, You'll see that uh, even today, in a lot of our smaller communities, they still are our number one enemies. The way they go around and uh, chastise our children, force them to do things that they don't want to do, then brand them criminals. And when we do get good police, they shift them on out. The police are getting very close to us and close to our kids and, and uh, start doing the right thing. They don't seem to like that. Don't know why, when I thought the police were there to serve and protect. But uh, again, with music, you can see by the travelling that we do around the country, the music has taken us into areas where we never, ever would have went before, up into the Northern Territories. And uh, I can remember going to Barunga for the first time. And we were driving along the highway and then the rest of the boys in the band started getting excited because we seen the lights up ahead. Oh, here we go, we're getting close. And then we come up close and there's a massive, big police station sitting in the middle of the bush. We're thinking, what is here? What's this, this for? Ah, oh, yeah. This is not for the people, this is to protect the mines. You know, straight up, we've seen it. Just flash before our eyes. This is not for us. This is for the protection of the mines. And if they're there, we're for us, you know, like uh, the place being a better state. So, music, 
was that way and still is that way to keep people minds open and conscious and make them feel good about themselves while they're listening to this message and to use it as a tool that way I find it uh, very pleasing because there's no better feeling after you've done a, uh, a great performance everyone enjoyed what you've done and uh, you know that your job has been done when people are singing your lyrics and walking away with that seed that you planted in their, in their minds. That's from them listening to your music. Music was the uh, first stage of us becoming used to being up on a stage. From there, we'd done a couple of major tours with the band in the early 80s. We were on our way to Melbourne in 1984. We couldn't get down because of the, the old Hume Highway was all iced up and there were major accidents along the road. We only made it far as uh, Canberra. We were here to see another Aboriginal band off on their very first international tour. No fixed address. They were on their way to uh, England. So uh, we, we were coming down to show our support. We didn't make it, so we... we End up going back home, the long way, and uh, the members of the band said, listen, we've got to do something about our culture. It's disappearing. So uh, the members of a band, we started the very first dance group back up there then. So we put the guitars down for a little while and then picked up the, the tap sticks and the boomerangs. And we started a venture there. We started the uh, Jabba Guy Dance Theatre up in Karanda. The Dance Theatre, again, was a, uh, a project we put together just to save our culture and to start on our language preservation, documenting our language and using the modern tools now that are available to us like books, the computer wasn't really out then yet and uh, none of us were used to that. So it's just a way of us promoting ourselves as, as, a, uh, as a group, as, as a Aboriginal tribe or bummer, bummer. We call ourselves bummers up there, Aboriginal people, bummer. So... Many times I think about those days, that theatre, it became so popular and it became one of the biggest things that ever hit our town. We employed over 70 people, all on above award wages. So we changed the face of that town just with uh, the perseverance of what we thought we had to do to keep ourselves alive. If we weren't doing something that was shaped and designed around our culture, we'd just simply uh, wither away and become a victim of this, uh, I call it, divide and conquer process. And you feel that when you're in a position like we are, 
like uh, you call us activists, you call us uh, freedom fighters. We didn't um, wake up one day and say, well, I, this is what I'm going to be. You know, some of us are just born into it and you are coached along the way by your friends and people who trust and love you. And love is, is the biggest drive of the activist movement. So when you touch the word love, that's where it should be there with activism. That runs along with activism. If it wasn't for the love of our country, of our people, for each other, for the land, for the waters, for the animals, we would not be doing what we're doing. And love is the only thing that can push us all through. No matter what nation you're from, what people you come from, what country you come from, if you've got love, love conquers all. I've seen that, I've witnessed that, and I know that. As a kid, I was sent up to these uh, old ladies up in Mariba on the school holidays, and one of the old ladies used to buy my school books. She sponsored my schooling for me. So... She sponsored my schooling, and uh, she said, boy, when you go to school, I want you to learn, and you learn good, and what you learn, you bring them back to your people. So I've always kept it in mind, going through high school, going through the examinations, I was surprised that, uh, of all things, I got the highest marks in English at the whole high school. And uh, nearly up there with mathematics as well. So, history, well, I wasn't too much interested in the history we were being taught, so and there was something wrong with that, I thought. So, the real history is yet to come. It's still yet to come about who we are as a nation of indigenous or the tribes that we have here on this land. The truth is still yet to unfold. The out of Africa theme, we, um, they'll turn that one around. As long as they give more emphasis on the people, First Nations of this land. But with the music, I say, it was, um, you've seen other bands come through. Yoti Yindi, we all know that song, Treaty. And... Uh, not many after Yachty Yindi. Um, we have Stacy, Tracy Donovan, and uh, she's doing well. But for a lot of us, we like to see the, the real essence of uh, Aboriginal spirituality come out through the music as well. And using our language, the language is the other big breaker people don't realise that in this country we had over nearly 300 different languages. In my area up there we have six, just around the Cairns area. 
We got my language, Bulwanji. There's Yabaganji, Gunganji, Yuraganji, Najan, Jangan, Mularuji, and Yirinji. These are different languages. So, being multi tongue with languages was a natural thing for any Aboriginal child of the days speaking many languages. And these are things now that music is a way that we bring it back together. We start writing songs in languages now to help revive the language because a lot of kids and their parents uh, just don't, you know, they've been disconnected, properly disconnected. So getting the dance back, the theatre proved to be a very successful. It still runs today. It is now in Cairns, down the bottom of the mountain. It's called the uh, Jabagai Cultural Park. Now it comes to the land management side. This is where I find myself today as I get older. And uh, getting back onto the country and looking after country, looking after our art sites. We have uh, rock art sites the rainforest rock art sites. Our art is so it's different to art just um, 200 kilometres away up in the Laura area where you've got the world's greatest, largest collection of art. And, uh, you know, you could, one man can't get through that old look at any of them art up there in his whole lifetime if he's tried to study them art up there. And it shows you how long our people was on this land just through the art and the stories that come. Again, we have scarred trees. We have trees that uh, have messages on them. We have the old tracks. The old borings are still there intact. So these are the things that are of grave concerns for people like myself and I'm sure the other leaders in the communities that, um, again, love our ancestors who love our culture and don't like to see it be forgotten. Right now, the uh, Queensland government has just announced that they want to uh, inject a lot of money into um, Indigenous tourism. So... Uh, me and a few friends, just only a couple of weeks ago, we started uh, Tuesday night meetings. On, on the Tuesday nights, we'll get together and uh, we'll bring the community in and uh, say, well, what can we do? How can we go about it? Creating a, another venture for ourselves outside of the dance because uh, everyone knows we can dance now. I mean, that dance theater is well over 30 years old, so, and they're still running, so that, that's a statement for itself. And, uh, but there's more. But, but the thing is, with us, we don't like to give it all away. We'll give you little pieces. We'll give you a little taste of who we and what we're about. Unless you come and live with us and spend some time with us, you'll start to 
feel and know the impact that each individual groups around this country is going through. Like our dilemmas that are going on up there in the rainforest could be quite different to what's going on in the deserts. You know? And vice versa. We have different water issues, different upper, and we've got no problems with water. Our water's never run out. We count ourselves quite lucky in that area. So... So country is so important. The singing of country, the singing of the animals, the timing of birds. And then with land management, we look at the way this country has been burning. I was down here nine years ago with Victor Stephenson, who was on Q&A um, Monday before last. We came down to promote fire and the story the story about fire and how land management is so crucial to the future of this country. You've got a healthy country, you're going to have healthy people. And if you've got a sick country, the people are going to be sick too. So what we do try and promote all the healthiness and, and the good sides of our, our culture to benefit all people of this land. Not just uh, our race, but all the other races that have come and to live with us here. Because if we don't listen and take the advice of the old, our ancestors, and do the practices of our ancestors, we're in for a bumpy ride into the future. This country is only uh, 200 years under... Uh, a lot less up north. As I told you, it's only 100 years up north. That's why we still got a good grip on our fire management up there. But please, you know, you've got to get a message out to your, uh, to your uh, representative bodies and uh, convince them to look back at it, the indigenous land management. It's, you know, like uh, we, we talk amongst ourselves with our families and we just say, I can't imagine. I, I could never, never imagine in my life facing a fire that high. Because it never happened. It just never happened. We're so used to walking through fires that are running this high. You know, kids get involved with it. Children get involved with it. It's the teaching of it all. Of, of, uh, it's, it's a day out. It's like when you're hunting as well. Kids get involved. They, you know, this is where they learn all about the animals, the inside, the makeup of it all. So, once again, the music, I believe, is, is a tool that shaped me into the direction where I continue to go today. And if it wasn't for music... I wouldn't be here today. So uh, thank you for your ears, everybody. I think um, my time is up. Thank you. 
And that's all for today's show. I've been Eidwin. We've also had Rob and Jess on the show, a few COVID-19 stories as well as tram thoughts, which was pretty funky. And just finishing up then was Willie Brim. So have a lovely Wednesday. Next up is Six Together and talk to you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.